It's been a good day already. We've had breakfast. We've had a sunrise service. You're dismissed. We can go home now. My turn now. I told. Uh, it was a little alarming, though, that when Bill got up to teach this morning outside, that he used part of my text. You don't use my text, Bill. It's mine. But if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 23, we'll start in Luke 23, verse 44, and we'll go through 24, 12. So we cover a little of the same ground, but in a different light. We're talking about resurrection this morning. And resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. For unless Jesus rose from the dead, then our religion is bogus. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. But we're so grateful that the power of God rose his son for us today. So he is risen. Luke 23, verse 44, and we'll go through 24, 12. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And now behold, there was a certain man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to the decision and the deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come to him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment, chapter 24. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which had been prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood before them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. 
It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed like to them idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. We have here, of course, the last hours of Jesus on the cross, some of his last words, and the resurrection. Verse uh, 44 there, we're talking Roman time. They're saying at the sixth hour, or around noon, it became dark. And around ninth hour, uh, 3 p.m., the darkness lifted. So for three hours, we have darkness while Jesus is on the cross. Was this some kind of eclipse? Perhaps, but when you chase back those things, there was no eclipse in that period of time in several years there. So what is going on there? Uh, perhaps God the Father is demonstrating to mankind the darkness that is on the earth. Their Savior is dead. Matthew in his Gospels tells us that there was also a very strong earthquake. A rock splitting earthquake. That's a severe earthquake, by the way. It jolts the area. And it jolts the area so severely that the veil in the temple, which was approximately 40 feet high and about 8 inches thick, this veil is torn from top to bottom. It is torn in half. And many understand that this veil of separation that separated the Holy of Holies from the common man or God from the people, this curtain, this separation is torn in two at the death of Christ giving ordinary men and women like yourselves and myself the opportunity to enter into a Holy of Holies relationship with God Almighty. Christ's death allows mankind to be up close and personal to God. Now religion... If you study uh, the different religions, you find that there are a bunch of rules and regulations uh, that have been organized and set forth, and man is attempting to once again sew up that veil, repair that veil, and separate again man from God. The first work of our God when Jesus is on the cross is to tear that veil in two to break down that separation. Again, many religions tried to sew up that veil and make it difficult, not easy, difficult for you and I or any man to approach God. Doctrines and different religious groups attempt to funnel your relationship to God through themselves. In this way, the Christian religion 
separates itself from other religions, or it should. We will pray prayers. There are circumstances where we try to approach God through the customary paths of many religions and giving our money and giving our allegiance to these leaders of different uh, religions, different denominations even. But as a priest, as a pastor, my responsibility is to lead you into a relationship with God, not to separate you from God. You do not have to approach God through me. Aren't you glad? Yes, you are. I know you are. <laughs> and I'm glad, too, because I'm not up to it. Um, now, I'm not trying to offend anyone, but we have a few Catholics in our fellowship. We have a few former Catholics in our fellowship. And all I would say to you is be careful who you pray to. No saint is worthy of your prayers. No relative of Jesus is worthy of your prayers. In fact, Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. We are to pray directly to God the Father because that veil has been torn apart. We don't have to go through anyone to pray to God. And I'm so glad of that. And we pray to God in the name of His Son, Jesus. Our prayers are peculiar that way. I always listen when I hear a prayer, how do they end that prayer? They can begin out, O oh, merciful God, mighty art thou among heavens, and all this flowery talk. How do they end it? I'm listening. How are you going to close that prayer? And if you don't close it in the name of Jesus, you lost me as a listener. I'm not praying with you. Because we pray to God the Father in the name of His Son, Jesus. Now, the Jewish religion, they had developed into a, a religion of priest over laity. And that was the system of Jesus' day. And by the time uh, Christ is on the scene, common man, the ordinary man of the street, never had the opportunity for an up-close, personal relationship with God. You just didn't have it. Everything was funneled through the priesthood. All praise and worship was done in and through the priest. Jesus comes along and His teaching, and time and time again He would say things like, Worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, let your heart be in it. Jesus brought forth for us, for you and I, personal worship. We get to personally worship and glorify God. And hopefully we've already done that here this morning. We get to give God personal praise and thanksgiving. We have a personal salvation. And we have a personal relationship with God. The tearing of this veil in the temple 
along with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for each and every one of us, is personal. Jesus never saved a denomination, a church, or a group. He saves people, individuals. And that sort of flies in the face of the popular Gnostic teaching and belief of the early church days. The Gnostics believed that their superior knowledge and their superior position uh, over the laity, over the ordinary man, made that ordinary man approach God through themselves. Or they believed in a priesthood over the laity. The tearing of the veil broke all of that down. Chuck Smith, who founded the Calvary Chapels, he makes a confession, and I like this confession he makes. When he gets sick and when he needs prayer, you know who he gets? He goes and gets a child. He gets his grandkids to pray over him because he says a child can pray uninhibited. They're not caring so much how they sound as who they're talking to. And they pray directly for the situation without a lot of fanfare. I think we could all learn from that. So we'll have the children pray over us adults later. No, it wouldn't hurt. (laughs) But at the cross in our passage in verse 47, there's a Roman centurion there. And notice, whenever you read about a centurion in Scripture, they're always mentioned in a good light. And this centurion... He feels the earthquake. He sees the darkness. He puts the whole crucifixion scene into perspective, saying, surely this was a righteous man. Here we have a Roman military man declaring what every follower of Jesus should declare. Surely this was a righteous man. The crowd that is there, not the disciples, but the crowd, and the only disciple that's still at the cross, by the way, was John. The rest of the disciples have gone into hiding. But the crowd that is there, they beat their breasts. And that was a physical display in that day of sorrow and injustice. We've had a great injustice happen here, and I'm sorrowful about it. An old word we would use would be alas. I don't know if we have a new word for alas. (laughs) But Joseph of Arimathea, he's a council member of the Sanhedrin. He's a good man. And he has not consented to the death of Jesus. He has not gone along with the verdict of the Sanhedrin to crucify Jesus. Joseph, it said of him, he was a man waiting for the kingdom of God. Joseph is waiting for his Messiah. And Joseph gets up his courage and he goes to Pilate after the death of Jesus on the cross and he asks for the body of Jesus. And I know Pilate had to be mystified by this request because here's one of these members of the Sanhedrin that Pilate didn't like anyway, and this Sanhedrin member is asking 
for the body of Jesus to bury it. And what we learn from church history is this asking for the body by Joseph, it comes at a great cost to him personally. Joseph, according to church history, will be excommunicated from the Sanhedrin and from temple because he broke with the standard of the rest of the members. He has asked for the body, and they excommunicate Joseph. And Joseph, we're told, dies a pauper because he no longer now has those business relationships that are there within the Sanhedrin. And now Joseph is an outcast. But Joseph, he takes the body of Jesus down, he wraps it in a linen cloth, and he lays the body in a new tomb which no one had ever laid. Now nightfall is near, and with the Jewish calendar and the Jewish people, a new day began at sunset. So the Sabbath is very close, and Sabbath being the next day, and on the Sabbath, of course, no one is allowed to work. And we see here the loyalty of the Jewish people to their religion. Their religion where their priests and their leaders have just had a mock trial for their Messiah. And they gave Jesus over to Pilate. Why? Because they want him killed. They don't have capital punishment themselves, so they give Jesus over to Pilate because they want Pilate to sentence him to death. Yet the common man, the people on the street, still regard the Jewish law in high esteem. They regard it as sacred, and they will not disobey the Jewish laws because it's part of their lives. It's part of their heritage. And that amazes me that they're so loyal to the Jewish commandments, even though they see the hypocrisy in their Jewish system. Chapter 24. It's early in the morning. Certain women, followers of Jesus, they come to the tomb. They have burial spices for the preserving of Jesus' body. And they get to the tomb. They get to the grave. And the stone has been rolled away. And I've heard it said, and this has always stuck with me, the stone was rolled away not for Jesus to be able to get out of the tomb, but as evidence that he wasn't in the tomb. And I like that. That appeals to me. But Jesus, his disciples, they can see that Jesus is not there and that he's risen. In verse 4 we find it saying, And they were greatly perplexed by the stone being rolled away in an empty tomb. But we have there two men in shining garments. That's a clue that they're angels, by the way. And they're guarding an empty tomb? No. You don't need to guard an empty tomb. But these two angels, these two men, are there as messengers. And they have a message. And their first part of their message is a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's a good question, by the way. He is not here. But he is risen. That is the greatest news any ear has ever heard. He is risen. 
And then the angels continue, and they say to the ladies there, Remember. Remember how Jesus spoke to you when he was in Galilee. And he said, The Son of Man, and that was a title Jesus used for himself all the time. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified the third day and rise again. Jesus declared that he must be crucified. No avoiding it. He had to go to the cross. He had to be crucified by sinful men. And I like this part. And he must rise again on the third day. No options. So why do you seek the living among the dead? That was such a good question for these ladies. And it says, then they remembered. They remembered. And as I age, and not so gracefully, <laughs> my memory, or the lack thereof, it really bothers me. I forget trivial little things, and it drives you crazy. But anyway, these women had to be reminded, remember. And when the uh, angels tell the ladies, remember what he said to you? They said, yeah, we remember. Notice that it's the women who remember. Men, we would probably have argued with the angels. We don't remember. In fact, we're not quite sure Jesus said that. As a fellowship, we have quite a few bright students And to you students, I know your parents. So I openly want to thank your mothers for passing on the dominant IQ gene. Why? Because I know your fathers. <laughs> and I know how forgetful you are because I'm one of them. <laughs> but these women who remember, they're given a task to do. And they're to go and tell the apostles that Jesus is risen. He's resurrected. The men received the good news that Jesus is risen. But they don't remember. And I hate to point that out. Verse 11. To the men, to the apostles, these words seem like idle tales. What does that indicate? You've never heard this before. <laughs> I draw a blank here. <laughs> Sorry, angels. I can't remember any of this. And they did not believe them. What does that say about us spiritual leaders of the homes? <laughs> I'm not making this up. Read verse 11. But anyway, but Peter... And you have to give Peter credit here. He at least runs to the tomb to check out this resurrection story. And Peter gets to the tomb and he marvels. Why does he marvel? Because he hasn't believed. That's why he's marveling. 
in closing, let me direct you to Matthew chapter 27, and we'll read a couple verses there, 62 and 63. Try to tie this together. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember... While he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. What do you notice there? The enemies of Jesus remember. The women are reminded, and they remember. And that's sort of disturbing, because mankind, emphasis on man, seem to remember bad news versus good news. Is that true in your life? How about Pearl Harbor Day? You remember that? Bad news. We remember Pearl Harbor Day. A recent one. How about 9-11? Huh? Do we remember 9-11? We remember 9-11. Do we remember our anniversaries and our wife's birthday? We try. <laughs> Jesus' enemies remember his words. His disciples, his followers do not. So I urge you today. Remember the angel's words and Jesus' words. Jesus, the Son of Man, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And he must rise again the third day. So I close with, He is risen. Indeed He is. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer.